Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, The Underground is Massive How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan joined Matos on the 1993 See the Light Tour featuring Moby, Orbital, and Aphex Twin. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? And when I say that, you know it means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And today we're talking about his chapter about the See the Light Tour, which covered 13 American cities between October 29th and November 14th, 1993. Ryan, is it fair to say this chapter basically covers the first attempts of the traditional American record industry to mass market EDM in the States. It was definitely an attempt to break electronic music using traditional uh, traditional record label tour systems, but it was still a lot of, uh, you know, DIY promoters in different cities booking the See the Light tour, the See the Light tour being run partially by, you know, raver kids in New York City, getting all this kind of stuff together. So there were a couple of record industry people involved in it, but it was still very much an on the ground rave promoters trying to proselytize with their with their music and and take it, take it, you know, across the country, emulating the the big tour structure and we'll see that some of those promoters defeat themselves in much the same ways they've been defeating themselves in their local scenes but first we start with a look at gary richards who you might remember from last time a local la um promoter had been promoting tons of stuff uh his brand was what was it the double hot mickey something but it, they, lots of variations on mickey mouse and it's very very magic promotion. magic mickey yeah, the Magic Mickey promo guy. But he ended up swinging on the trapeze over to Rick Rubin's American Records, formerly Deaf American, not to be confused with Def Jam, which Rick Rubin started also. Um, Rick Rubin had decided that techno was going to be the next big thing. It was going to be the next hip-hop. Of course, he was a pioneer of hip-hop before he became a heavy metal and Americana producer. And so he formed a, a label called White Labels, LBLS, uh, and hired uh, Gary Richards to be his A&R guy. And right from the get-go, uh, Richards says that, you know, on his first day at the office, Rick Rubin's not there, and some older dude comes up and goes, oh, you're that techno F-bomb Rick was talking about. Stay out of my way while I'm doing real work. Yeah, <laughs> it's, and it's not that F-bomb, it's the other F-bomb. It's the yeah. even worse F-bomb. So it's, it's the not... homophobic slur F-bomb. 
imagine why white labels failed. You know, apparently Rick Rubin was never around in the office and he left things up to these other guys. And these other guys, you know, were the same people who were very happy to uh, jettison disco into the sun the second it started uh, to kind of slip in 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 sales. Oh, yeah. Not a lot of support from the other people in Rick Rubin's company, which kind of gives you an idea of how it kind of got maybe sabotaged from from the inside a lot of the times. And, and yeah, it's uh, there's plenty of blame to go around. I mean, we could quibble with the acts that Richard signs because the acts that he picked up were the Awesome Three, Digital Orgasm, Lords of Acid, and Messiah. All of them have hits in Europe, um, and they all flopped in the states. And Matos's explanation is basically that EDM was evolving at quote lightning speed, and these acts days were already over. Um, but Dan Charnas, who's a hip hop scholar and friend of the show. He was working uh, for Ruben on the hip-hop side at the time, and he said that um, the thing that he missed was that none of these acts between them had a damn song. How could Rick Ruben forget that? How could he forget that even hip-hop at its hardest, hardcore, was producing three four-minute pop songs? It didn't matter if the group was NWA or Fresh, Fresh Prince. The song structures were there. And so, uh, you know, most of these groups are producing, quote, tracks, which work great on the dance floor, work great at a rave. And in Europe, where rave had just taken over at the turn of the 90s, tracks that weren't necessarily following traditional song structures could fit in on the radio because there were enough blend-type songs, like Kevin Saunderson and other people were doing more songs-type stuff, and so that the the Joey Beltrams and others doing tracks could still um, get some get some space and get some air. But as it, as it happened, White Label's... Uh, didn't succeed at anything. And the one act that they almost had that later did sell massive units in America, they let slip through their fingers. I'm talking about Prodigy, whose hit Charlie was massive in the UK at this time. And they appeared on one of White Label's comps, um, a compilation record CD uh, called XL Recordings, The American Chapter. And XL Recordings was a label that a guy named Richard Russell owned in the UK. And uh, he was uh, licensing tracks over to Ruben in the States and prodigy was very unhappy with Electra who was their U S record label because they were quote doing shit remixes done by people we didn't like all the time. And Liam Howlett, the main guy behind prodigy welcomed Rick Ruben's overtures. Uh, but white labels died before the deal closed. Do you think it really would have mattered if they'd signed prodigy at this point in time? Um, probably not. I mean, later on in this chapter, they kind of talk about how Prodigy, uh, came to America and, and just wasn't making it because they hadn't figured themselves out yet. They didn't have that fat of the land makeover and, uh, they were still, you know, experienced as a sound. And I think this is the problem maybe with awesome three and digital orgasm and maybe even Messiah that, uh, old school. Well, I mean, at the time it's not old school, but that hardcore breakbeat sound just wasn't ever going to be a sound that was going to conquer America. It's just too hyperactive and it was too drug led and it, it was just too kind of over the top and cheesy. And I think, uh, you know, you needed something more stealth to kind of come in and get people used to the sound to, to build up to that point, you know, hardcore didn't happen overnight. It was a progression of, of, of sound that kind of took people with it you get into something and then, you know, your ear gets attuned to, you know, let's, let's use guitars, for example, and you can, you can put up with the the strange sound of an electric guitar and then you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. So all of these groups that Rick Rubin was trying to bring in, they all sounded like the most extreme 
hardcore electric guitar distortion that you could say, but none of it had any lead in. So nobody in America had had anything to kind of go on to get them where they needed to be in order to appreciate all this stuff. So just having the prodigy come in and dropping the experience on people's laps, this is, this is insane. Uh, the experience is not an accessible album for people. A lot of people go backwards from Fat of the Land to uh, to Jilted Generation to experience and then love it. But to just to have that like as your first, you know, heaping spoonful of electronic music, that's where I think, you know, trying to imagine somebody in middle America listening to that and 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 buying it is just not going to happen. So let's go ahead and hear our first track. This is the awesome three. Don't go from Don't Go by the Awesome Three from 1992. And why did you pick that one? Uh, awesome Three was one of the groups that Rick Rubin signed. And you can hear, you know, this is their attempt at a song. It's not, you know, it's not a seven minute techno track with no hooks or anything else like that. But uh, even even for that breakbeat hardcore sound, it's it's a bit tame. Uh, the the edges are, are rounded off of it. It just doesn't have that energy. So you can kind of see what they were going for with, with this label and just how they kind of missed the mark. That's how the record business goes. But other people were, were sniffing around too. And, and, you know, we talked about the James Brown is Dead 12-inch single that had actually made the top 100 on the U.S. pop charts. But Mato says that's not how the, quote, big biz rolled. And you know, it wasn't about vinyl anymore by this time in the early 90s. It was about CDs, but the underground small mom and pop labels could not get their CDs into Sam Goody's and Walmart and um, Best Buy and all the other places where Americans were buying their CDs. They didn't have the distribution network. DJ mixtapes were another way the music was getting out, but that stuff was local, very limited distribution and totally illegal. Um, as Mato says, the rave comps were mostly awful, but they were the only way for fans to get hands on the music or even learn the artist's names and song titles. And so Profile Records, which was a hip hop record label, uh, made their money off Run DMC plus Rob Bass, DJ, DJ Easy Rock and DJ Quick. Um, they hired uh, DJ DB, a.k.a. DB Berkman, to do their A&R. And he started putting out these best of techno comps, uh, licensing tracks sold 100,000 copies of the first edition, and it was off to the races. After that, American Records, of course, did the comp we talked about earlier, and lots of labels were doing it. It was super cheap to license these tracks and super easy just to flood the market uh, and, and to see what was going on. And, you know, the music's slowly but surely getting out there. It's just not taking over America yet. Yeah, I was definitely one of the people roped into electronic music through these compilations. Like the first electronic music I ever heard was a best of rave compilation my friends brought back from Switzerland. And, uh, you know, 
it just blew my mind because it had a, a whole bunch of strange European kind of techno hardcore. And then a couple years later, I got my hands on one of those best of techno CDs. I got the box set, which is like four CDs and it had everything. And this is where, you know, picking an A&R guy who was from the UK and and knew what worked over there and and kind of had maybe some connections so he could go and he could get the instead of getting, you know, all the uh, all the all the kind of tracks that are ripoffs of the good tracks, the best of techno albums actually had the best. It had a lot of, it had uh, trip to the moon by Asen. There were so many tracks that I kind of wanted to stuff into this episode just off the best of techno compilations. If you ever want to kind of go back and, and just have a real, uh, a real experience of kind of what was going on in the 1990s, the best of techno compilations are just, are just full, full of amazing tracks. And it kind of caught everybody up on everything that was going on from like 1988 to 1992, 93. Hmm. So there's some archival value there. Uh, so glad to hear that. And yeah, that's, you get this stuff out there and kids will find it and kids will hear it. And if there's any power to the music, it'll get some moves. And so after Matos talks about the comps and the, and the failed Rick Rubin white labels label, he talks about a club in New York that is so significant. It kind of sets the template for the whole rave ethos in America for the next few years. And it's called NASA and it's not the national aeronautics space association or whatever. It's the nocturnal audio and sensory awakening club. And it was co-promoted by a DJ DB that we just mentioned, who was the profile records techno A and R guy. That's DB Berkman, who is a Brit. He's also working with Scotto, a.k.a. Scott Osmond, who's the lighting director and the first guy to use IntelliBeams, which is a fancy modern triggered laser light system that you probably associate with raves. Um, this is where it started in the States. Um, uh, Berkman had moved to the States, moved to New York City in 89. In 1991, he started a London-style rave night called Brilliant. But as he says, it was a year too early and failed pretty quickly. NASA was right on time. It was Thursday nights at the shelter, uh, starting in July 1992, open at 9 p.m., going through 7 a.m. It drew a very young crowd. He used DJs from both Storm storm Raves and Limelight, so both the sort of outer boroughs, um, grassroots promos, rave promoters that have been going on, and the downtown Manhattan big-time club. Uh, DJs as well. It was built on Plur, Peace, Love, Unity, and Respect, which was Frankie Bone's tenant when he started up Storm Raves. Um, it had initially been Plum, Peace, Love, Unity, and Movement, but it became Plur. How did that change happen? Steph's reminding me, I should mention, we had to switch Ryan to the phone, so he's going to sound a little different, but this is still the same Ryan. He's not an alien that's been uh, substituted for our, our real Ryan. Yeah, it's an appropriate switch back to 90s technology for this 90s episode. So, But uh, yeah, Plur uh, became Plur. It was originally Plum right back in the early days when Frankie Bones and Adam X were uh, spray painting it on the side of uh, trains. Uh, and then uh, an unnamed, well, not an unnamed raver, but I don't have her name in front of me, uh, on, on one of the lists basically suggested that respect replaced movement. And I think it was a real nice addition because, uh, you know, there's a lot of crap talked about and and about how it kind of repeats itself and everything else like that. But I feel like it's very explicit in its meanings. And I feel like respect at the end there, respect is such an important one to remind people uh, about that. Uh, yeah, I just really like, uh, it, it just flows off the tongue better than plum as well. You know, obviously you don't want to be thinking of a fruit. You want, to, you want it to have its own thing in your mind. I, 
makes perfect sense to me. And I think it's time to cue our next track. This is Moby, Next is the E from 1992. Next is the E by Moby. Why'd you pick this one? Uh, we're going to be getting into a lot more talk about Moby. Moby was one of the NASA DJs. He said he played there so many times he lost count about it. And next is the E is, you know, other than go, I feel like next is the E is the uh, one of his kind of biggest early tracks. And it's kind of a, a funny one because Moby claims that, you know, the using the letter E in the song was not actually uh, supposed to be uh, a reference to ecstasy, which is just one of those weird Moby double talk moments where sometimes he can be very honest and truthful about his music. And other times he can make claims like that, that just make you roll your eyes and think, who is this guy trying to fool? But uh, I love next is the E this here was the, the original version. There's a club remix that's uh, even kind of cooler, but uh, the original version has like that kind of clunky, strange, almost uh, non, non-musical or out of key elements to it where, the, where all the elements don't fit together perfectly, but it's a real rager. Yes, indeed. And we will be hearing uh, Moby, Moby, Moby before this episode is over. So let's get back to NASA real quick. They had a lot of DJs and more DJs meant shorter sets, frequently just one hour. And we're coming, you know, at the beginning of this Techno Roll series, we were talking about DJs like Francis Grasso playing for 12 hours at a time, somebody Larry LeVan going all night at the Paradise Garage. Things have changed immensely. But Mato says that that actually matched the ever-fracturing music because the music is fracturing into subgenres constantly at this point in time. And that meant that they would have frequently have set after set of different each set would be a different subgenre so you might have a set going from hardcore breakbeats or one set of hardcore breakbeats for an hour then another hour set of groovy house then an hour set of trance and then maybe finish up finishing up with something like dark black ominous clouds by disintegrator and so it kind of allowed even though there's these subgenres that are musically very distinctive they had a ton of overlapping audience and DJs who were mixing all of these genres into their sets. Yeah. House music is such a, already it's, it's become such a big diverse genre and you've got a whole bunch of house that you don't want to hear at a rave and a whole bunch of more, more appropriate rave house. And you got to book the specific DJs to get the kind of sound that you want. So, uh, you know, each DJ goes around with a reputation for a specific style or at the very least uh, a specific level of energy that you can expect from them within that style. So it's really about, you know, at this point in time where people might not know the names of all the subgenres and even the subgenres themselves haven't been codified into subgenres, but they know that there's a DJ that brings a certain level of energy that you can rely on them to, to bang the box to the level that you need in order to dance. So that was... You know, not only were shorter sets allowing uh, different DJs with different styles to come in, but more more names on the flyer allowed you to kind of bring in 
all of the fans of those DJs. So it, it was partially for, for the musical experience and it was partially a promotional ploy. You know, each DG, DJ brings in 15 to 20 of, of his friends and you have 10, 10 DJs on that flyer and then you got yourself the beginnings of a party. And there you go. And this is also the place and the time when the U.S. raver dress code was set for the rest of the 90s. So they're taking wide jeans and they're cutting in upside down V shapes and then sewing in fabric to make the flares even wider, completely covering their shoes, wearing platforms under there. Um, a lot of 555 sole hats, which is these funky sock hats that were originally designed to hold dreadlocks. Um, you also have people like Philly Dave pioneering the liquid dance where basically you dance like you're one of those inflatable dudes standing outside the used car lot um it was immortalized in the movie kids which was directed by larry clark but more importantly it had it script by harmony corinne who was a nasa kid and chloe savigny who was the star she was also a nasa kid um and what was Apparently it she used to run the uh the the coat check for for a while too wow well maybe that's where she met vincent gallo um but <laughs> Speaking of dangerous decisions, the 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 movie basically the the rap on the movie is they got the drugs right and got the sex wrong. Although uh, they do say some of the kids might have been having that kind of sex, but there was lots of pill taking going on in the scene, lots of poly drug use. We've talked about this before with Simon Reynolds. Very dangerous when you add young, inexperienced teenagers who have no idea of what they're doing, have not yet learned what their body's capable of, what kind of drugs agree with their body, what kind of drugs disagree with their body. And then they're just taking random handfuls of pills and mix and match um, with no sense to it. You know, ultimately, that's they did. They did kind of point out the fact that the shelter and NASA being held at the shelter was was a tamer uh, as far as drugs and, and debauchery goes. It was tamer than the limelight. It was it was it was a better vibe. And I feel like a big part of that had to do with the fact that they were pushing the fact that this is a club that believes in plur. The promotional flyers from the shelter used to claim that it was New York's only non-prejudicial progressive underground dance club, which obviously, if, if you've ever been to the Paradise Garage, was not true. But just the fact that you put that on your flyer and you say plur, you know, the, these, these labels matter. And, you know, uh, the fact that NASA at the shelter was uh, just a better time than the than the limelight, which had a real reputation for being sketchy and dark. You know, it was the same kids who were going to the shelter on one night and limelight to the, the other. But the experiences that you were having at the two were, were very different vibes. So the fact that the the vibe was different in the other place, I feel kind of tells you what even just just aspiring to a to a certain vibe can can produce as far as the scene goes. Yeah, absolutely. A host can generally set the tone for the party they're hosting, and that goes for club owners as well. And um, DJDB favored UK hardcore's breakbeats and pianos and helium voices and tracks like Energy's Need Your Lovin', which Mato says was an ominous cartoonishness, both fetching and menacing, so kind of gets that appeal and also kind of the dark undercurrent that's going on and this is the same time the uk scene is evolving from hardcore into dark core or dark side and then into jungle nasa ultimately ends up ending in july 19, 1993 but i think it's fair to say their influence lasts the whole decade oh for sure because i mean when you look at it they, they were saying that basically uh nasa ran for about a year 
and uh, its influence can't be understated. But you've got uh, Scotto, who was the main guy behind NASA. He stuck around for a really long time. He was involved with the Ravestock portion of Woodstock in 1994. He did a a masker rave every year, which was a big deal, uh, still under the, the promotion guys of NASA. And then he was one of the key guys that did the see the light tour as well. So, and he's still, he's still around, he's still bopping. So uh, his website is still very much 1997, but he is still out there DJing and doing stuff. Well, that is good to hear. And, and NASA was just one of many new promoters filling the gap uh, when st- left by Storm Raves. Um, Adam X and Heather Hart started up something called Mental, which was their post-Storm Raves promotion. Uh, they were going for smaller parties to avoid the police crackdowns, which were becoming kind of constant on the bigger events. They found uh, one one show they did was in an abandoned squat warehouse in Williamsburg, drew 500 people. They found a landlord in Greenpoint, which is right on the border of Brooklyn and Queens, and um, he was renting, pretty amenable to renting his derelict properties there under the E, uh, had a show in a parking garage there in Greenpoint that drew a thousand people. Meanwhile, Frankie Bones has uh, collapsed, too much angel dust, he had to go to rehab detox in 1993, uh, spent six weeks in a mental hospital, fortunately recovered and kept DJing, but was never kind of the king of the scene and the big time promoter again. Then you had other promoters like the McMuffin Family, Infinity, Guaranteed Overdose, Uptown Underground, The Caffeine Crew, Park Rave, Madness with two Ds. Um, and so uh, things are going, but let's take a break and hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, it's going to be Moby, Moby, Moby. All right, and we're back. And as promised, we're going to be talking about Moby. That's Richard Melville Hall, born 1965, raised by his widowed mother in Derry in Connecticut, typical hippie childhood. Um, you know, had to deal with his wife's, his mother's boyfriends and that kind of stuff. Early drug abuser. But then he discovered Jesus and gets the straight edge and uh, hence his reluctance to admit that the the song mentioning E in the title was about ecstasy because, you know, he's got a brand to protect. But they talked to this guy, Michael Meacham, who was a high school friend of Moby's and was a promoter in D.C. He was a DJ at the Industrial and Goth Club Tracks, which was a gay nightclub that, that was, you know, doing that kind of industrial and goth new wave stuff that was what we had in America before uh, rave music took over. And then um, Moby plays there a show called Future in suburban D.C. on June 27th, promoted by Michael Meekham and a hip-hop promoter who drove off with the cash. Um, And already, um, Moby, two things were different about Moby. One was he was blowing people away with his high energy sets. He's coming out there stage diving. He's doing the Jesus Christ pose. He's putting on the full rock star show. But the main, the cost of that is he's playing dat tapes. He's not doing turntablism live. He's not triggering his synthesizers. He's putting a tape in, pressing play, and then jumping out and entertaining the crowd. And that's a double-edged sword from the get-go. Yeah, there's definitely always been this kind of uh, attitude towards people who claim to be a live show that just end up, you know, uh, playing, playing a DAT tape, which basically just means having your entire set recorded in whole and, and then pressing play. Like uh, these days, most artists who claim to be playing live, even though it might all still be running through a computer and, and, and the computer is playing everything at the very least, the computer will be playing the 30 different parts on different channels that, a, that a, a performer can, can alter or do things with. 
But when it came to Moby, it was literally just uh, one flattened audio track that was playing while Moby would pretend to be doing things on a keyboard. And therein lies the rub, because you have a guy who's basically quickly becoming the biggest name in North American rave music on account of the big hits that he's having over in the UK. And he's traveling everywhere, uh, carrying the cross, literally and figuratively, for EDM. And he's uh, pretending to be a live show when it's not. And it all kind of, uh, obviously, it all kind of comes back to bite him in the ass, because now you've got uh, the internet And we all know how the internet loves to comment on things. And all of the rave boards are basically saying, can you believe this guy? Can you believe that he's doing this? Can you believe that he's saying that he's live? And can you believe that this is the dude that's carrying the torch on rave in a North America? And we'll talk in a minute about his attempts to um, quell that firestorm and only feed in the fire. But let's get back to his bio. He uh, came to Manhattan in 1989, got a full-time DJ gig at Mars on the west side, Signs with Instinct Records. He's the first signing. Very much, this is a classic record business story because, you know, record company is basically one or two dudes. Moby is one dude. They work together very closely. He's in there packaging up uh, shipments just with the rest of them. Um, Puts out a bunch of records that he says, quote, sold about 500 copies each, including Time's Up by The Brotherhood, but The Brotherhood was Moby. That came out in September 1990. The Mobility EP was credited to Moby as Moby, uh, came out late 1990. And obviously Moby is a joke name, nickname he got because his name is Richard Melville Hall, Herman Melville, Moby Dick. He's a short little guy, so they called him Moby as a joke, kind of like little John in Robin Hood, who was not actually little. Moby is not actually a giant white well. The Mobility EP featured Go on the B-side, but not the Go that we know of now. It was the, the first mix. And he starts doing radical remixes, which was a practice that Kevin Saunderson of the Belleville Three was kind of the first guy to to start doing when he replaced the entire backing track to UK rap duo We Papa Girls Blow the House Down. Keeps the vocals, does a whole new backing track and puts out his remix. That was a hit. And Moby had his own studio, so there was no cost to him in doing multiple remixes. So he would put out a track, not be happy with it and just keep messing with it which leads to the creation of the, the go that we know, which is the wood, t- wood tick mix. And uh, he layered in the chords. He didn't sample it. He played, played the chords, but, but he you know, heard what was going on on the record and, and played the same chords, recorded himself from Angelo Badalamenti's Twin Peaks theme. So really clever track. I mean, it gets that feeling of the Twin Peaks theme. He plays the keyboard thing, and then one note of the bass line doesn't play the whole bass line, but gives you that feeling like it's going to go there and then goes into his track. Really brilliant um, pop EDM production from Moby. At that yeah. Point. The chords on that are spooky and then energetic. And it's, it's one of those things that I think, uh, you know, is very exciting in music where you hear something that, you know, tickles the brain because it's familiar, but then goes in a different direction. So it had that kind of going for it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the interesting thing about his relationship with Instinct is he wanted out of that deal pretty early on. Things went very south between him and his label. But his label happened to have basically all of his hard drives with all of the noodlings that he did, which is why if you uh, if if you go out and you buy the Go single from Instinct Records, there's like 15 different mixes of it because they basically just had all of his files. And for years after 
he left instinct. They continued to just basically go through his hard drive, taking his tracks and, and releasing them uh, at Moby. And it, it caused like a kind of a big rift between them for a while. The book says that it's all resolved and everything else like that. I guess they, they figured something out financially or just at the very least emotionally. So they're, they're all over it at the time. But uh, there, there was a long time where Moby was kind of stuck in one of those infamous deals where he wasn't allowed to go anywhere else. And his label was just releasing old stuff that, that, that they had their hands on just out of kind of uh, happenstance. And longtime letter will listeners will recognize that situation. Same thing that happened to Frank Sinatra when he left Capitol Records and started up his own reprise label. Uh, it's a tale as old as the record industry. If they have old time tapes and the license to release them, they're going to do it, even if it messes with your career. Um, let's see. And then he hits the UK top 10 in fall of 1991 and is on the famous or infamous now, thanks to infamous monster DJ Jimmy Savile, who is the host. He's on top of the pops, which was a UK institution, a combination of the Billboard 100 and American Bandstand. And I mean, it was a British TV institution where people who had top 10 hits would appear and play their, their hits. He's on the show, the same lineup as Alternate, 808 State, Dream Frequency, and Dinosaur Rockers Genesis. He describes Phil Collins, who I didn't know was in Genesis at this point in time. I guess he must have gotten back together with the three guys in the early 90s. Um, just kind of looking aghast as all these kids with their drum machines and, and synthesizers and turntables are mostly lip syncing uh, to their songs. He's Moby's one of the first artists to cross over in the UK and Europe. And that kind of confused me because we just mentioned Kevin Saunderson. He had top 10 hits and top higher than top 10 hits under a number of aliases and different act names. What about people like Derek May and Joy Beltram? They're talked about as these massive influences on the UK scene. Were they not charting? Uh, I think it's just one of those situations where you have the established story of, of kind of uh, Moby being one of the guys to, to break through and being one of the, one of one of the big success stories. And in that we lose sight of some of the guys who came before him, who maybe were doing something a little bit different, you know? So, uh, obviously, uh, Lenny D was over there. Frankie bones was over there. There's a number of guys that were over there, but Moby was getting those number one hits. He was the one on top of the pops. Uh, so in, in that way, he was having more success than them. And as we've learned many times over, if, if it ain't charting, it ain't history as far as some people are concerned. Yes, we've learned that. And let's hear our next track. This is Moby, All That I Need Is To Be Loved from 1993. And that was Moby with All That I Need Is To Be Loved from 1993. And why did you pick that one? Uh, this is uh, one of his 1992 songs off of uh, his Move album. And it's funny because this is the single version, which sounds very sonically alive and, and very ravey. And uh, the, the album version does not. The album version was engineered or mastered differently and was very flat 
Uh, it was almost like it was engineered for radio play and, and therefore didn't sound good getting mixed together. And it was a bit of a, a bit of a wreck as far as uh, DJs were concerned. And it, it kind of signaled Moby's shift away from, you know, uh, making music for the underground and making music for the DJs to making music for uh, a big record label. And the funny thing about this song is that his next album, Everything is Wrong, had like a punk rock version of the same song just uh, continuing that flow of Moby kind of moving away from his rave roots somewhere else and uh, as, as his bridges are being burned. But before we uh, shut ourselves to Moby, let's talk more about why and how he got so popular within the scene and then beyond the scene as he did. He loved the hybrid dance scene. He, he, there's a quote from him in here. He said, you had hip-hop breakbeats, disco vocals, new wave bass lines, big orchestral strings on top, thrown together in a sped-up, exciting way. So he really liked this melange of different genres and different influences that was present in the rave scene and did his own versions of it. And he loved the do-it-yourself aspect. And so he was coming out of the punk rock scene where, you know, in America in the 80s, the record companies abandoned punk rock or wanted nothing to do with it. So the kids had to learn how to put out their own records and make their own scene. So that became an ethos that ended up spreading much more than the punk music itself. And he loved that aspect of it. He modeled his stage shows on Henry Rollins. And there's a great quote from him in there about, you know, maybe if I'd come up a few years later and been into shoegaze, like my bloody Valentine or whatever, instead it would have been a whole different deal. But since he came up on hardcore punk, he was all into the stage diving and everything. And his presence could not be more opposite than Henry Rollins. So I, I really do wish I had seen some of these shows because it's hard for me to really imagine Moby blowing a club away with his physicality. But that's apparently what yeah, happened. I mean, you have to recognize that that at this point in time, most electronic acts hide behind uh, either the DJ equipment or their synthesizers. And, and Moby was one of the first guys to, oh, my God, stand on the table with the DJ equipment or, or, or with everything else and, and do a Jesus pose like all the trance DJs do now. It's like at the time, uh, just, just the act of stepping out behind the equipment and running around on stage was revolutionary and, and everybody lost their minds to it. So, I mean, as far as uh, Moby always kind of thrived on the fact that he looked like a, like a, like a, just a nerdy kid. And then once the show starts, he turns on the energy and he jumps around and he rages and everything else like that. But, uh, you know, it was a different, a different standard back then especially at electronic shows where where for the most part uh, the idea was almost a david mancuso uh, continuation where the music needs to speak for itself and the artist needs to kind of shut up and let it play makes sense to me makes sense to me and yeah as somebody who was in the punk scene and the metal scene at the time one of the reasons i didn't get into rave was i had really worked hard to like industrial bands and seeing skinny punk puppy and kmfdm and other groups like that live um they just didn't have the intensity that the metal and the and the hardcore bands i don't think the sound equipment was there yet because you know even seeing public enemy um in the late 80s was just not as powerful not nearly as powerful as they would be when i saw them again 10 years later so um yeah so moby's got limited competition as a live act there and then they matos takes it and talks about some of the other tours that were going on there was a package tour called rave new world which had prodigy headlining moby in the number two slot a group called cybersonic which was richie hotton and john aquaviva plus eight records 
Smoochie Hut, maybe more famous as Plastic Man and various other aliases, plus Dan Bell, who uh, didn't get to go on the tour because they couldn't afford to take him. But it's a six-state U.S. tour in February of 1993. NASA, the club from New York, sponsored it. Electra Records' Marcy Weber organized it and had to spend hours on the phone with Prodigy talking him down when they were like, where is Rochester, New York, and why do we even care to go there? And apparently they had him going back and forth from like Rochester to San Francisco and then back to the East Coast in a 48-hour period, which I don't even know if you can drive that far in 48 hours, but massive. Yeah, as soon as you go east-west, it's so bad in America. And I have uh, DJ friends in the UK who kind of talk about how they'll set up three gigs in a night all across the country, and they'll drive they'll drive, you know, maybe five hours to hit all three, all three cities. And, and in, in, in Canada and in the U S in a lot of places, five hours is, uh, you know, the amount of time you're going to spend getting from one city to another. And if you're going kind of from the East coast to the West coast, that's like 36 hours, uh, North South ain't that bad. I've driven to Florida in a 24 hour period and I wouldn't recommend it, but people were doing it. Uh, I drove to, from, from, Ottawa, which is kind of along the same line as uh, New York, all the way over to Chicago, which is like 18 hours or something like that. It's just not not fun. And uh, if you're the prodigy and you're used to maybe going three hours from one gig to another, it must seem absolutely insane. Yeah, no doubt about that. And um, Cybersonic was on the bill because of their hit uh, Technarchy from 1990, which sold 15,000 copies straight out of the box. It continued to be a big seller after that. Um, they were a key U.S. imprint for U.K. hardware along uh, with Mint, or that song was a big model for U.K. hardcore, along with Mintasm by Joey Beltram and Underground Resistance that we talked about before. Um, but Prodigy's elaborate show, their their hip-hop track suits and stuff, didn't go over as well with the U.S. rave kids, and so it kind of came to be known in the underground as the Moby show. Moby was basically just stealing the show from the Prodigy night after night. He, he unveiled the Jesus Christ pose during a a set finisher thousand on this set and then it's very interesting to um read moby's comments about that tour and compare and contrast with basically everybody else on the tour uh, my notes say to consult page 146 so i'm going to do that now and moby says um Moby recalls the tour fondly. We were all friends. We were all young kids, and it was celebratory. It felt like we were all in it together. Uh, and then John Aquaviva was Moby's tour roommate. Quote, by the end, I was spoofing Moby and his track dates at Soundcheck. Moby was starting to take off, so he stopped traveling with us because he couldn't be bothered being a team player. By the end of the tour, he was flying around and would just show up and do his shows and not hang out. He just couldn't get along. So truly, there are two sides to every story. And I don't think John Aquaviva seems like the kind of guy who would kind of, uh, you know, uh, be, be, be telling tales on this. And the thing about it is there's Moby's side and then there's like the 30 other people that, that were on the tour that agree with John Aquaviva about kind of how things went on. And this is where Moby is a little bit of a William Shatner of the rave scene where, you know, for, uh, he, he just doesn't seem super self-aware of of everything kind of going on around him and i have no doubt that in his mind uh you know his his account of things or the things that more importantly he doesn't remember uh you know didn't seem that important to him at the time but they were very important to everybody else well maybe he wasn't in the van when they were all making fun of him behind his back so <laughs> missed that part of the camaraderie but let's go ahead and hear our final track this is satan by orbital from 1991 
And that was Satan by Orbital. Why'd you pick this one? Yeah, Orbital comes in on the Sea of Light tour, and I know a lot of people listening to Orbital now get a lot of their more ambient, more kind of bleep-based, chill-out stuff. But, you know, Satan is just a reminder that they were able to kind of rock it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. And it uh, gives you maybe an idea of some of the stuff that they would play on tour that would get everybody moving and hyped up. Cool. And then um, Matos talks about that tour. And then he takes a minute to dwell on Moby's success and kind of explain it. And he, he quote, he says, it wasn't just a string of tracks, but a series of anthems. You had Go, Brainstorms Rock the House, Voodoo Childs, Voodoo Child, you had Drop the Beat, Next is the E. Uh, and, it, and it says... You know, as a quote from Moby saying, during the rave era, 98% of my records were inspired by other people and were really naive, enthusiastic homages to other people's records, be it Derek May or Joey Beltram. He had multiple homages to Beltram's Mintasm. Uh, Move was inspired by Rosala's Everybody's Free. Uh, Feeling So Real was inspired by Dream Frequencies, Feel So Real. And then he saw Sven Veth play a record that went from 130 beats per minute to 160 beats per minute. So he did 1,000, which went from 130 beats per minute to 1,200 beats per minute. And Mato says that Moby's gift was taking dance music production tricks and turning them into pop songs. And I have to say, after listening to multiple Moby albums and compilations to prep for the show, I'd never listened to that much Moby in such a short time. And it really does almost sound like a sampler of rave music in this era. I mean sometimes just one track will make me think of three or four different styles. He was really kind of boiling this stuff down for a mass audience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen Moby a couple of times as a DJ and uh, he's very much a crowd pleaser. And I imagine that his live shows at this time, the music that he was producing uh, would, would take the big tracks or the big sounds at the time and they would distill them down into their, their, their essence. And then he would throw them into his set and create a back to back to back uh, series of, of just massive hits, drops and moments. So uh, this is not a person like, you know, a lot of people crap talking Moby. Uh, and, and I guess we're, we're contributing to that as well. Uh, but, you know, musically, he was delivering at this time during during this era before he started getting kind of disinterested in the rave sound and, and moving off from it, which is where where everybody really started to to get kind of angry with him or maybe they got angry with him and then he started to leave us a response. Yeah. It's, it's the, the chicken or the egg, but nonetheless, he made a big mark and made a big difference in the music and his music had a lot of power and impact. It talks about how he signs with Electra. Marcy Weber uh, had just promoted the tour he was on and coincidentally she worked for Electra and, and gets him on there. His Moby EP comes out on Electra in August of 1993. And like you said, it was mastered for radio, not dance floors. Um, and, and that, Mato says that he was um, perfect for the music bizzers, writers, and kids interested in rave as a diversion rather than a scene, and that he wanted to be a star in a scene that consciously rejected glamour. His show made mesmerizing and exciting theater, but, quote, the spectacle of a man changed by electronic dance music reenacting the Damascus scene experience to a loud backing track. That's referring to, of course, uh, Saul, a.k.a. St. Paul, who is converted to Christianity on the road to Damascus after having this brilliant vision of Jesus saving his soul. And so, you know, Moby's kind of reenacting that. 
And also, Matos explains that in the context of the American music business at this point in time, the two big factors were hip-hop, which had just broken through enormously behind Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, and alt-rock, which had broken through enormously behind Nirvana and Pearl Jam and the whole grunge explosion, but was much bigger than just grunge. It was a whole range of sounds that had long been kept out of the mainstream marketplace, suddenly taking it over. Both of those genres were song-driven and star-driven, and that uh, techno needed somebody like Moby if it was going to break through. And so this is kind of the story of this chapter, is Elektra trying to push him through. But again, he's immediately being vilified for miming his performances. So it's a double-edged sword. And then finally we get to the subject of the chapter, which is the See the Light tour, put together by Marcy Weber of Elektra. 13 city North American tour package. It's got Moby headlining. You've got England's Orbital and Aphex Twin. You've got Vapor Space plus local DJs, people like Josh Wink in Philadelphia, et cetera. The local guys would come in. Vapor Space was a guy named Mark Gage of Rochester, New York, who was an industrial fan who had bought his drum machines cheap in the 80s because he was in the ministry and Skinny Puppy, et cetera, and then ends up you know, bragging about how he bought his 808 for a few hundred and sold it for a few thousand in the 90s when you know, this electronic music scene was blowing up. He's on Plus 8 Records and then signs to London's FFRR um, imprint, puts out his track Gravitational Arch of Ten. Orbital is a pair of brothers, the Hartnell brothers. They're also Paul and Phil Hartnell. They're on London Records. And London really had no idea how to promote electronic dance music in the States. All they could come up with was tour, 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 hence this uh, package tour. Um, they Their one concession to stagecraft was wearing little torch glasses, like they had little tiny flashlights tied to their glass, the arms of their glasses. And so that kind of looked cool, like sort of the gnomes of Zurich uh, working away in the dark. They, but they did play live PA. They, they were manipulating their music live. They usually came on after Moby, despite him being the headliner. Then you had Aphex Twin, which is Richard James of Cornwall. We talked about him in the Simon Reynolds series. He had also recorded as Power Pill, AFX, and Polygon Window. Wax Track, the Chicago and Denver indie label, we've talked about the industrial label. They licensed Polygon Windows Surfing on Signwaves album from Warp Records, put out four, licensed three other Warp Records as well. That leads Matos to take a little diversion, talk about Warp Records, which again we talked about in the Reynolds series, that they were putting out bleep, bleep tracks. They're from Sheffield in northern England. They were putting out bleep tracks, which was less brutal than Belgian techno, but fit in well in, in those kind of GABA sets um, and contemporary with that stuff. They were fluky successful from the beginning. They put out Dexterous by Nightmare and Wax, which absolutely, luckily, grazed the top 75, quote, almost by accident. Then they had LFO's LFO and Tricky Disco by Tricky Disco, both of which made the UK top 20. Then they had Orbital's Chime, which was a big breakthrough. Then they put out the Artificial Intelligence compilation in July 93, and that was EDM not to dance to. That was the quote-unquote dread, dreaded intelligent techno that was um, the sound you know, for sitting down with your bong and listening to it. So sorry for blathering on so long trying to summarize so much. Any thoughts you want to add about oh, well. the this chapter is just like a fire hose of dance music history. There's like so much going on and it touches on half a dozen chapters from the other books that we went over in past seasons. I feel like we spent a chapter on bleep. I feel like we talked a lot about, uh, 
Uh, we talked a lot about Richard D. James, and we've touched on Orbital in the past. Uh, this, this chapter throws in Moby and the Prodigy. They're all here, and they're all on one tour, and we're kind of having to touch on all of it and the importance that it had outside of America, plus the chaos surrounding the tour. So it, it's just a lot. I feel like this one chapter could have been uh, a whole documentary, but it's not, and there is no documentary. And what's crazy is that the Cedalite tour was supposed to be this big thing that broke EDM in North America, but it barely made a blip on the American cultural radar. Like if you go to YouTube and you try to find anything about the Cedalite tour, nothing exists. And you go on Google and you try to find the flyers, and barely any of them survive. It, it came and it went, and all that's left are the memories of those that attended. So it's and, and this chapter from Michelangelo Matos that seems largely pieced together from the from the the message boards at the time. Yeah, which thank God that those existed, and thank you to Michelangelo for going through all those message boards and sifting out and putting together a coherent narrative here. But yeah, and Moby. Um, triggers this backlash. She sends out a, a, a message to the internet attempting to address this controversy about um, what he's playing and, and not playing live. And that this, you know, I think Matos has just a great description of it, that, that it's one of the first of the endless no winners back and forth that we now know that's what the internet is all about. But at the time, this was new. And so people would start these conversations online and you have this magnificent new tool that you have so much hope and aspiration. You're meeting people from around the country that are into the same thing as you are. Nobody else in your town is into this kind of music. And next thing you know, you're sucked into this endless flame war <laughs> and you don't know what's going on. And somebody like Moby is going to just keep talking. And he sent out two open letters, one in all lowercase and then the next one in all caps, which apparently he didn't know uh, was yelling. And so, so Go Away Moby becomes this pre-meme meme on SF Raves and the other bulletin board list. So classic, and it's fitting that this music is pioneering so much of the culture we are now, unfortunately, trapped in. Yeah, and it's just, you know, Moby made the mistake of just not owning up to the fact that he plays off that. He keeps on asking, why must me quibble about how much or how little is being done with the DAT and and the, the the again the the truth of the matter is the DAT was doing 99% if not 100% of all the work and therefore for an artist to come out and claim and and say that he's being unfairly uh, attacked for, for for playing a DAT when he's not you know you you either have to own it or or at the very least not bring in a drummer and a keyboardist who aren't mic'd up to anything to add to the I don't know if that was just like that's on his part but yeah, he adds a he adds a drummer and he adds a keyboardist. Neither of them are, are hooked up. Everybody on tour is really annoyed because he's still flying from spot to spot and everybody else is actually having to go in and set everything up for him, complaining about the fact that none of it is hooked up and it's all props. So it, it's turning into a, it's just turning into a big scandal and nobody is nobody is particularly happy about it. Not even Moby. Yeah, and I love the fact that he hires a keyboardist, tells him he's not going to be mic'd, his job is to look cool. As you know, as a pro I mean, I don't know what he was trying to do, but he just adds fuel to the fire. And, uh, you know, Richard James ends up uh, getting a friend of his, Paul Nicholson, to dance around kind of as a parody of Moby. Richard James is in the back actually playing, but um, has a guy that most people think is the Aphex Twin up front uh, dancing around, and it's, it's, it's basically a parody 
of Moby. So, um, yeah, I mean, Richard James is not is the worst guy to have on a tour like this if you're going to be a big star jackass because he is going to own you again and again. And so between Moby pwning himself and everybody else piling on, um, yeah, it's 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 epic. Um, there's a quote from Matos. Moby's intersection with the wants and needs of the American rave massive had gone awry. They didn't want to be lectured, parentheses, yelled at, by someone bound to a moment just past. So once again, Matos's explanation for part of the reason of the failure of Rick Rubin's white labels and um, the bands that he signed, and I'm thinking about Lords of Acid and Digital Orgasm and the Awesome Three, as they were hot like six months or six weeks earlier. And by the time their records came out in the States, they were no longer cool or relevant. And Moby is the same thing. He was the man of the moment in 92 and into 93. But by the time you get to the end of the See the Light tour, his moment has passed. And yet he is still the aspiring face that's trying to break techno in the States. And it's it's interesting to talk about the different um, shows. They hit New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Montreal, Toronto, both in Canada, as you, as you mentioned, Detroit, Chicago, Indianapolis, Denver, El Paso, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, where they wrapped the tour November 14th. And it's funny, the um, Indianapolis show is full on Spinal Tap. They're playing at a food court mall and most of them are vegans and vegetarians and can't even eat there um the show at pontiac michigan near detroit is at industry which was a club that mixed industrial and techno for underage crowds uh and there a, a roadie threatens moby with a broken bottle this is probably somebody whose career had been setting up amps for guitar bands and so he can smell the future coming doesn't like it waves a broken beer bottle at it and then in la our last chapter we talked about how the la promoters had kind of killed the golden goose in their scene with too much snitching on each other, too much greed had too many, uh, you know, violent people at the shows. And this guy, Art Parent, who was a notorious LA promoter, promoted the LA leg of the tour at Marina del Rey. And some of the people described it as quote, the nail in the coffin for the LA scene, that it was a disaster. They had a, a sellout, but they had put it in such a, patently unsafe warehouse they had garbage bags hanging from the ceilings to function as room dividers when they're totally flammable and could have been you know this nightmarish plastic flame bomb um death trap in no time so the police came and shut that down and then in, in la galleria in san francisco for the final show uh it was considered the best show of the tour one smart ass said that even D D moby's dat tape seemed inspired that night and then um you know, and, and San Francisco is also kind of reeling now because Malachi O'Brien, who'd been one of the beloved, the most beloved promoter in the San Francisco scene, had been paralyzed in March of that year in a van wreck after a full moon rave. So, you know, there's kind of a pall on on San Francisco, even though it's the best scene of the tour. And a couple of later months later, Moby tells Jim Poe, who had been the keyboardist on that tour, the guy who was hired to just look cool. Moby says, I'm bored with rave, dude. The music's gotten too esoteric. So. In this chapter, we've had the rise and fall of Moby as a leader of the scene. Obviously, later on, he'll come back to even more massive commercial success in the late 90s. But this is kind of it for Moby in the underground. Yeah, and it's, you know, the, the interesting thing is how the tour stops down in all these different places and ends up getting co-promoted with all these different promoters. So you, you have kind of that weird, sketchy, opportunistic streak uh, at, at different stops, everything being a little bit more official and above board on the East Coast. 
and then, you know, starting to slide into absurdity around the middle of the country and then getting out to the West Coast where the promoters are just stuffing as many people as they can into a death trap in order to try to maximize their profits and the police uh, in, in a full scale war trying to stop these things from happening. So it really gives you a, you know, a cross country overview of, of what's going on in the rave scene at this time. Yeah. And this chapter, like he says, it covers a ton of ground, but it really does a good job of explaining why techno, it wasn't yet EDM, wasn't branded as EDM. Of course, it was electronic dance music, but this is why techno didn't break through in the early 90s. This is why hip hop and uh, alt rock and grunge had to feel to themselves in the mainstream at this point. So next week, we'll be back to talk about Spastic in Detroit, Michigan, August 8, 1994. For Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate follow Matos back to Detroit for a look at the evolution of minimal techno and the rise of Richie Houghton. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.